What goes into making an iconic building in America? What are the stories and who are the people behind the next generation of architecture? If your work touches the real estate industry in any way, or you're just curious about what goes into one-of-a-kind cities and towns all across our country, join us on the American Building Podcast. In season two, we learn about everything from skyscrapers to single-family homes, from the famous and soon-to-be-famous designers and developers responsible for them. This season focuses particularly on the pandemic and how our buildings will change in response. Our sponsor is the iconic design firm, Michael Graves Architecture and Design. And now your host, award-winning architect turned entrepreneur, Atif Cotter, AIA. This is American Building, and I'm your host, Atif Cotter. I'm the CEO of Redist, a technology company focused on innovative financing for real estate projects. We are recording from the historic home of world-renowned architect Michael Graves in Princeton, New Jersey. Check out this amazing space for yourself at the Michael Graves Architecture and Design YouTube channel. Now, let's build something. Today, our guest is architect Mark Gardner. Mark is a partner at the New York City-based design firm, Jacklish Gardner. The firm's incredible work has appeared in press ranging from Surface Magazine to Dwell to Architectural Record to the Wall Street Journal and even the New York Post. Mark started his career in architecture at the firms Jeffrey McKean Architect, Murphy Burnham and Buttrick, and Stanley Love Stanley. Besides his design work, he is a professor at the Parsons School of Design and previously served as the director of its Master of Architecture program. He has also been active in community initiatives with Superfront and the National Association of Minority Architects. Listeners, you'll recall that our recent guest, the great Pascal Sablon, is the next president of NOMA. Mark is a graduate of the architecture programs at the University of Pennsylvania and Georgia Tech. In our conversation today, uh, we will be talking about the Inwood African Burial Ground and Lenape Ceremonial Site, which is also known together as the Inwood Sacred Sites. That is located in Upper Manhattan in New York City. More broadly, we will be discussing the architecture of colonization and the colonization of architecture. Thank you so much for being here with us, Mark. Thank you. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Absolutely. So let's bring it way, way, way back. When did you decide that you wanted to become an architect? And what were some of the earliest influences that you had in that path? Mm. I think, you know, when I was a kid, I was always interested. I mean, a lot of people, a lot of architects will say this, you know, the building blocks, Legos, mm -hmm. putting things together, taking things apart to see how they work was always of an interest for me. I think I always loved how things sort of went together, uh, would come together and, and how buildings were, were made. And so it was always an interest to me. And I'll add that I, I had no idea what I was getting into. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, a lot of people say like, oh, I knew, I don't think I knew what architecture was or could be for me. Mm -hmm. You did your undergraduate studies at Georgia Tech and your graduate studies at the University of Pennsylvania. 
how do you compare those two programs and your experience in living in Atlanta versus Philadelphia? Oh, it was interesting. So one was uh, Georgia Tech was my undergraduate experience. Mm -hmm. Penn was my graduate experience. There were quite a few years between. Mm -hmm. um, I actually took out time to work, the, which is always a debate among architects. Mm -hmm. Like, do I go back, back, back to school right away or do I work for a while? And I probably say, I'll tell people, usually people say like, oh, I wish I had worked longer mm -hmm. um, before I went back. For me, it's quite the opposite. And I've always gotten into conversations with other architects because I, I never considered this statement controversial, but I would say I worked too long. I worked for about five and a half years. You think it was too much? I think it was too much. It was too much. It, it actually, the difference between the education was I was, in my undergraduate, I was a lot more open because I had no idea what to expect. When I got to the graduate program, I think I came preloaded with got it. too many expectations of what that education was going to look like. Mm -hmm. The surprise, the discovery in my undergraduate space took a lot longer to get to in, my, in the graduate program because I came with some preconceptions and I actually had to, I had to break myself, break myself of those preconceptions. I had to kind of step back and be a little more open than I, I think. I think what I find, uh, so in comparison, I did a, a four-year bachelor's degree in architecture and then got licensed and then did an MBA. So I didn't do a second uh, hmm. professional degree. But I think for me, what I found is that with architectural education programs, it is this idea that there is a certain way of thinking and a way of designing that is very, I think, uh, emblematic of a particular program. And if you come with, as you described, those preconceived notions, it can probably make that process of understanding a little bit tougher and more difficult. But another challenge that I've talked to folks that did do MRCs, but then go to paths where they were not design architects is finding opportunities for crossovers with um, other disciplines. So for example, mm -hmm. I had a chance to interact with the grad students when I was an undergrad at MIT. And I think our school does a fantastic job of crossovers, particularly with the, the bleeding edge of tech uh, and the frontier of innovation and change. So for example, the Media Lab uh, is actually under the jurisdiction of the School of Architecture and Planning mm -hmm. at, uh, at MIT. And I think that sort of a reality is so absolutely fascinating. My guess is that's probably also a challenge that some people might face uh, is how to get experiences outside of that that traditional uh, quarter of design architecture within an MR program. Yeah, well, within an MR program, I think the time is also, I can say this also as a, a teacher, that the time is so short that you're trying to actually, you're educating a range of people, some mm -hmm. who come to the profession with maybe that undergraduate experience, right? Or others who have worked in the profession for a while or both, or or some who've never studied architecture before. And so it's almost like you have to have that regimen to sort of get them all to the same, at least the same basic level of requirements that um, the profession sort of demands. So as a, as a professor, do you feel that teaching makes you a more competent architect and being a professional architect in practice makes you a more competent teacher? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, I think what's interesting about it is you, we have, you know, in the profession continuing education, 
and continuing mm-hmm. education might really be focused on those who, um, look, we all learn, mm-hmm. we all continue to learn. We should all be thinking that way. So it's like being able to keep up with the, the energy and vitality of students really sort of keeps me on my toes in terms of what they're thinking about because mm-hmm. their thinking is different. Practice and, and academia kind of need each other in those ways. Practice always needs to be kind of refreshed mm-hmm. and rethought. And I think the ways, you know, technology is one vehicle that make, brings about that change. Think it changes in thinking about how we relate to other human beings, uh, changes about how we relate to our environment. Mm-hmm. So I'm really curious about the, your current firm, which is your firm um, with your partner, Jack Gardner, and you've been practicing through this firm for 17 years. How did you find your partner and how do you compare your work styles and personalities? So Stefan Jacklich is my partner. We actually went to Georgia Tech together. Got it. Um, we didn't really know each other. I kind of knew of him through mm-hmm. that network of, of people. I had worked in New York for a while, and then I saw um, a posting from his practice and went and interviewed, actually interviewed with his senior associate. Mm-hmm. Um, toward the end of the interview, he came in and he said, oh, you don't remember me, do you? And I was like, I kind of remember you. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, and that we went to Georgia Tech together yeah. and that we knew some of the same people. And it just all sort of, you know, carried on from there. You know, Mm -hmm. I think we really hit it off. One of the ways that as now as partners that we work, we always like to describe sometimes he's the gas and I'm the (laughs) brake. And sometimes he's the brake and I'm, you know, and I'm the gas kind of thing. And you need both in order for the car to run. That's right. That's right. And so we, we really sort of like, if he's like too big picture and still can't, focus Mm -hmm. on some of the details i'm there to kind of pull him into that level or if i'm maybe too caught up in the details too early and he's there to kind of pull me out and remind me of the the big picture i always joke with my wife it's like i'm i have it's like i have two marriages and it's like you know it's like i'm constantly trying i know how my wife operates and how I have to operate around that sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I also know how Stefan operates and how I have to operate around that. And we have so much respect for one another that, you know, if, if it gets ever heated or Mm -hmm. it's because we both care about, about the work, we care about the client. Um, We care about putting things out there that really sort of represent how we kind of see the world. I love that bit of a mental jujitsu, which you just described. Um, and I think for me, uh, so for, for Redis, we're a team of uh, nine, nine now. And uh, my co-founder has a very complementary personality uh, traits to mine. And I find that in some cases, the, the car analogy that you used was completely apt for, for us as well. So I think that, that that makes a lot of sense. So I want to talk about the, the Inwood Sacred Sites. This is an incredibly unique project. It's located in the Inwood neighborhood in the northern reaches of Manhattan. Uh, tell us about this neighborhood and the site in particular. Yeah, Inwood is uh, is as far as you can go north in, in, on, on the island of Manhattan. 
and it's the last the 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 Inwood Park is the last remaining bit of the mm-hmm. arboreal forest um, that existed on the island of Manhattan. And so, what's really interesting about the neighborhood is that it also like it was it has a long history like Manhattan, like New York, of like there were farms like the Dykeman Farm up there that um, during Dutch times. And so it's it's just a really interesting site. It's like the city has changed over time. The 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 topography, the environment of it has changed. It was, you know, rolling hills and bluffs and you know, it got leveled out like a lot of places and, mm-hmm. and the grid came in and blocks of buildings um, over time. The the Inwood site was actually a so in the farms that were up there there were enslaved people. Um, during Dutch times. So um, those enslaved Africans were, had a, a burial ground. There were a couple, there were two different, there was the sort of settlers, Dutch settlers burial ground that was just south of there. And then to the north, this um, hill that had um, enslaved peoples in, in a burial site. That site also was, you know, there evidence of around that area, the Lenape uh, habitation before that. Mm-hmm. So it has a long history, um, long geographical history, you know, uh, geological history and peoples that have sort of moved across the land there. What happened in the, so that burial site in the early 20th century was leveled and the, there's a photo, I can see it now. It's uh, from the New York Times and it's how the 10th Avenue and um, the area is being developed and how the site is being, this hill is being leveled and that the grave sites that were there were being removed. And that removal was, there was a stack of, they just stacked the bones like all together, skulls, you know, femurs, all the bones just kind of stacked up. So that's the respect that was sort of being shown to that, history and then that site got built over you know as i say it left a probably a scar in the in the history of that place and so this project was an acknowledgement from the community when um uh, brc the bowery residence committee actually decided that they were going to build a shelter here on the site and so one of the first things that happened is the community came to them and said this was a burial site. This was a sacred site of mm-hmm. enslaved people. This was a inhabited area by the Lenape. Like you should, um, in your development, you should try to acknowledge that. And I, I really give it to BRC that they, they listened, they held community engagement sessions. I mean, really listened and um, had their advocates you know, all the way to the top in the organization of not just sort of building the shelter here, but also like, you know, and a shelter is hard enough in, mm-hmm. in a community where people might push back against that, but, you know, also of trying to acknowledge this history. And so that's the project within the bounds of the building and the courtyard. We're actually doing a sacred space, a sort of a recognition of that history that's being led by uh, Elizabeth Kennedy, who's a mm-hmm. landscape architect. And she bought me on board um, our firm. And then 
we also have an indigenous designer, Studio Indigenous, which is um, Chris Cornelius, who's the chair at um, University of New Mexico. Okay. So then just to confirm the scope of the project, uh, could you review the different elements that are part of it? Sure. Um, you know, one of the things, what I'll say about that BRC really sort of created a space for us to like, this was a ideal project for me because it, it really became like, before we jumped into the project, there was really, it wasn't like, okay, here's the brief, design it. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like a competition or it wasn't like a, a sort of like, we're on a fast schedule, give us this information, do a design. It was, let's sit down. And we had a number of listening sessions. And I mean, listening where mm-hmm. we actually got sort of a summary of the feedback from the community. We talked to members of the team from BRC and consultants and an advisory board they'd bought in, which included um, Joe Baker from the Lenape Center mm-hmm. and Peggy, Peggy King-Yorde, um, who's a, a consultant, historical historian and historical consultant on these sort of uh, African-American sites. She worked with the African-American burial ground in, in lower Manhattan. Mm-hmm. So they provided us with sort of perspective and feedback before we even started sketching, drawing, thinking about it. And so part of that was imagining what the space could be. Is it a, is it chapel-like? Does it need to teach? Mm -hmm. You know, is it a, a, like a museum space? Is it got maybe artifacts? Does it tell the history? Does it have some timeline? Is it a space that allows the community to come there to just sort of, could it teach in a very quiet way about what the history of this site was? And I think we ultimately, we started to tend toward the latter was like, let's let this be a very quiet, sacred space, almost akin to a chapel uh, in a way, uh, almost a ceremonial space mm-hmm. that acknowledged in its elements, the, the history of the site, the history of the land you know, so we're, we're talking about like, you know, the floor being almost like a, you know, potentially like a tamped earth and then having like sort of black granite walls, you know, the element I worked on was really this sort of interior space mm-hmm. that acknowledged the, the, the black history of the site. And so I had these sort of white and blue beaded, you know, large, almost like oversized beads like float glass um, on braided rope has an element across the ceiling. And then the, you know, the outside courtyard uh, Elizabeth is working on, but then the space over that Chris Cornelius has designed it almost like a totem piece that has like perforated metal skin Mm -hmm. um, that lets light sort of filter through. And that's like, it's a huge piece that sits over the courtyard. It's magnificent. It it really reflects a lot of some of the work that he's done in Mm -hmm. studio indigenous. And he worked on that with, uh, with Joe Baker. I should note that uh, Chris is not some, some of your listeners would be like, well, is, you know, Chris Lenape. No, he's not Lenape. He's, from the Oneida nation, mm-hmm. um, Wisconsin, but he really works around the country with different group tribal groups, mm-hmm. um, really sort of able to sort of listen and understand where they're coming from in terms of, uh, 
for design in terms of their culture um, and how to start to incorporate that. And so he worked with Joe Baker, the Lenape Center. Joe's an artist um, as well, who's had a recent exhibit at, um, I think you're looking at the Queens Museum, or not mm-hmm. the Queens Museum, Queens Library System. And so it was like showing contemporary making within the Lenape culture. So that reflects the contemporary, the traditional mixed with, you know, sort of a modern take on it. Mm-hmm. And so Joe worked with Chris to really sort of capture you know, capture the culture in a way that I think um, the few could. So the you mentioned uh, the other people that are part of this project, the other designers. Beyond the 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 beginning piece, which was about uh, understanding and observation and being able to draw inputs, what did the rest of the design process look like with? a number of different designers working together on the project. Were there like weekly meetings or weekly Zooms? How, how did it work out? Yeah, we, we actually did it over Zoom. Mm-hmm. Um, there were, we, we'd schedule when we could, but you know, with Elizabeth has a very busy, her practice is very busy right now. All of, I think all of us are. Chris and I both being academics are sort of tied up in our mm-hmm. school schedules. So whenever we could, we put meetings together, usually um, at the end of the week when we could get a little bit of time scheduled out, you know, and we'd go through and we'd talk about, you know, what we'd heard at a previous workshop, um, how we interpreted it, did some sketches that we shared on the screen, sketched on the screen, um, and talked a lot about really, we started with this sort of sectional quality of the site. Mm Mm-hmm one of the things that um, I don't know in the end, I'm mentioning it, I don't know if it'll happen, was as a burial space, you know, Elizabeth wanted to push that courtyard down to the six-foot level below the street as a datum. So you would under, you know, six feet under kind Mm -hmm. of thing. Understand it as sort of a burial site. But then there are also all these sort of practical considerations like egress and all of that that we had to really sort of factor in. So we're thinking about all of those things, but at the same time, really sort of at this moment, sort of freed up in a concept to just think about what this, what all of these sort of material cultures coming together could start to look like. Mm-hmm. You now, one of the things I looked at when I talked about beating, that's something that I was drawn to because I think it's shared among, you know, African and, and indigenous cultures. And so I looked at the beating as a, a way to kind of speak a common sort of, of language um, that could start to speak to sort of both histories or, you know, one or the other. Mm-hmm. And the, the projects that you saw as inspiration, so you mentioned the African Burial Ground uh, National Monument in Lower Manhattan. Are there other projects that, that you or the, the other design team members took on as inspiration as you develop your design strategy for the Inwood Sacred Sites? Yeah, I think, you know, the African burial ground is is really a, a big one, really, because mm-hmm. I mentioned that um, Peggy Kingiorde had worked, um, had been a consultant for that one. And so we were, we had to, you know, we looked at that, you know, we looked at, uh, for me, I looked at thinking about the materiality and the history mm-hmm. in the African American Museum. Mm-hmm. That's the you one know, in Washington, D.C., right? In Washington, D.C., part of the Smithsonian on the Mall. By David uh, Adjay? David Adjay, Phil Freelon, mm. uh, uh, 
uh, Max Bond definitely had a, you know, a lot of, um, contributors, but mm-hmm. really the, I think the, the capturing of the material culture of that space, like the, the skin on the outside mm-hmm. that's based off of some of the work done by, um, by metal workers in mm-hmm. New Orleans who were enslaved people. Also thinking about, you know, there are things even beyond that that inspire you that maybe aren't about that material culture. Like I, for me, I always think about the, even just the history, the sort of invisible histories that exist of like in DC alone of like um, the enslaved people that, you know, built a lot of the buildings, mm-hmm. the, the White House or, you know, the or cap- much the of cap- Georgetown, for example. Yeah, sure. Exactly. Or, or, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm from Williamsburg, Virginia mm-hmm. and, um, you know, a lot of the buildings in Virginia and you think about Monticello and, you know, the top lead carpenter for Thomas Jefferson was, uh, you know, one of his slaves who really sort of led and made a lot of design decisions based off of what he knew that Thomas Jefferson would want to see. Mm-hmm. And currently, where are you in the design process? We're, we've just presented the concept to the advisory board. Mm-hmm. Um, Elizabeth actually just did a um, uh, First Friday's presentation for the Architectural League. Mm-hmm. And so she does a great job. If any of your listeners want to like find that with the Architectural League, she does a great job of describing that project um, and shows some images of it as well excellent um but uh so she just presented that and got the okay to do that so we're we're sort of cleared through concept and now we've moved into schematic design where we're starting to think about some of the really schematic design design development where we're starting to think about some of the practical issues there's so many sites like this you know that we could sort of talk about like across the country of uh, African-Americans, particularly African-American, well, and indigenous sites mm-hmm. that are, are being erased. They've, they've become parking lots or big box developments mm-hmm. where, you know, sacred sites have been, you know, either destroyed or um, covered over, lost in time. I am going to take a break here to let our listeners know that the wonderful Chalk Lee of Clear Mountain Capital will be on the American Building podcast next month. Uh, We'll be talking about housing affordability, developing around a college campus, and how to actually get a project approved. Uh, NIMBYs be damned. Uh, So (laughs) subscribe to the podcast now by visiting American Building Podcast and clicking on the links to get our show on all the major podcast platforms. Redist is a venture-backed, technology-enabled company transforming access to public financing for small to mid-sized real estate developers. We are currently doing in-depth research with public agencies and municipal governments that handle incentives in Connecticut, Florida, Texas, and California to inform our product development. If you work for such an organization or know someone that does, please reach out to us at redist.us. And Michael Graves Architecture and Design is a full-service design firm based in Princeton, New Jersey. Following the legacy of its founder, the iconic architect Michael Graves, the firm is helping clients of all sizes realize their building goals across the United States. Learn more at michaelgraves.com. 
So Mark, in reading the recommendations report that was put together for this project, I was gut punched by this statement. At its core, BRC recognizes the traumas of homelessness and impoverishment intertwined with the ongoing effects of centuries of racist oppression and the erasure of Black, Indigenous, and people of color communities, like you had mentioned. Learning the history of this site, the horrible injustice that happened, and the desire to see justice served prompted BRC to halt further planning for development to reflect, assess, and contemplate how best to proceed. When you hear this, what is going on through your mind? I wish we could all be as thoughtful in acknowledging a past history and that somehow we didn't just magically appear in this present moment. Mm -hmm. You know, I never used, I, I didn't used to know how to answer the question where someone would say to me, usually someone white would mm -hmm. say, to me, well, like if we're talking about issues around race or slavery, it's less like, ah, oh, boy, more about this racism thing. Can you just drop it? And it's like, that's my lived experience. Mm -hmm. That's our, our history, you know? Oh, this constitution thing. Can you just drop it? Some people want to, but you know, it's like, it's the same as it, it, it's part of our fabric. And that doesn't mean that it has to be a, well, I, let me put it this way. I think it's interesting that we want to all of a sudden d start to assign judgment too quickly. Mm-hmm instead of being able to just examine it for what it is. It's like, I've been, you know, I've, I've given talks before where I'm interested in history and I can hold two thoughts in my head at the same time. Mm -hmm. Thomas Jefferson was a genius. Thomas Jefferson was a slave owner. And a rapist and a child and, abuser and, and continue on. Yeah, it's gone. And so it's like we can we can get into the these sort of the details of mm -hmm. sort of how these things sort of operate, but it's like they operate within the same space. And so it's like as soon as we kind of acknowledge that, then we can start to then we can move forward. You know, I just don't see how we can move forward without, I, I, I can't imagine that in any other part of my life. It's like, mm -hmm. how do you move forward on anything until you've made an acknowledgement of what you've done, mm -hmm. where you are and where you intend to go. It's so funny that it's almost been said, like, just decide where you intend to go without knowing where you are. I think the, what I find so fascinating is this, reality that there are many truths that can exist at the same time. And I find it in some ways very precious and very comical if someone can imagine that there is a right and a wrong, that there is a black and that there's a white. And there's really no shades of things in between. And I think that ends up being the domain of someone who has 
been the other in some context of their life. Because if you are on the outside, it's often the reality is you have to be so wildly observant of the world around you oh, yes. uh, and be able yeah. to draw all those conclusions. Like, for example, for myself, brown in America, minority. Amongst brown people, I'm from from uh, a Desi country, so India or Pakistan, minority. Amongst them, I'm Muslim, minority. Amongst them, I'm Shia, minority. Amongst them, I'm a particular sect called the Altibora, minority. Amongst them, uh, my family speaks Urdu as opposed to Gujarati, minority. Uh, there's yeah. literally no place yeah. in the world where I can be the majority. And for me, that's, I think, why I, I really only see things in grays because there's really no way of being yeah. that is black and white. Yeah. How could, how could you, mm-hmm. you know, how could you sort of like, I'm always surprised when, when I think, you know, somehow personal color, it's not being fixated about the idea of race or color. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's just knowing who you are yes. and how the, you know, it's like, even, you know, we see it in the world, even if you want to ignore that somehow or, or others. Now I'm speaking from the, the view of the white gaze, right? It's like if the in seeing that, they go, can't you just sort of like, why do you have to have that be such a big deal? Just mm-hmm. live your life and all that. And then it's and yet there are things that happen that want to remind you always of who others believe you are. Mm-hmm. Right. And so you have to kind of you always have to negotiate that, you know, it's like the the boys always sort of talked about of like living, you know, that sort of coding of like Mm -hmm. living between worlds. And so how you have to be in this one world and how you are in another Mm -hmm. code switching. Right. As it's called, it's like, you know, it's like sometimes I sort of wonder, like, I see how when I'm in certain environments, like with my family. You know, and it's like, that's where I'm one way. I, I mm-hmm. won't say I'm more, at this point, and I don't know if this country, I wouldn't say that I'm more real in one or the other. Mm-hmm. I'm both, right? And how I might be in another world where I'm with a client and I'm mm-hmm. just sort of like trying to, and I'm trying to speak to their interests or who they are. Mm-hmm. And so I might be, I might be putting on my telephone voice. You know, <laughs> or your your Darth Vader voice as the Darth- <laughs> listeners. You may you may enjoy this as as we're preparing for this interview. There were some technical issues uh, with our computers that made it such that when Mark was speaking, it sounded as if Darth Vader was speaking to me. So. I, I love James Earl Jones. So, uh, <laughs> must have been very. I wish I could have heard it. I wish I, I really could have heard it. But I think I think in terms of how you operate in these different worlds, it's like yes that's the duality that's the mm-hmm. that's the bifurcation of 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 self and so you it's not that you're you know you're one or the the other you're 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 both and yes and i think the in, in the particular topic of the the quote what i've come to realize is i consider myself a student of history and it feels like there's a particular line of thought is that if you are able to do something in the vein of desecrating human remains, that is such a powerful tool in erasing a cultural mm-hmm. heritage or mm-hmm. erasing an indigenous existence. And to be frank, that has been used by colonizers for centuries, whether it's 
Americans and Canadians against North American indigenous people or the English against Desis in South Asia or the Australians against Torres Straits Islanders or let's be very frank, Israelis against Palestinians right now as we speak. So in particular, I had traveled there several years ago and I like an image that's really strong in my mind was the destruction of the uh, Yusufia Cemetery, uh, which is in Jerusalem. It dates back to uh, Ottoman times, so 1467 AD, uh, that has been leveled or is in the process of being leveled to create a, a Christian-themed biblical park to attract tourists from the United States. Mm. So I think that this this line of what you're talking about is something that has many echoes across many geographies geographies of the world. Yeah, it's. I think um, these sacred sites, and especially those of burial sites, are, you know, culturally very important. It's where mm-hmm. we sort of place our ancestors, and and the place where we know to go to 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 pay our respects, to acknowledge our history. Government has sometimes really been a part of the problem because uh-huh. it actually helps make laws that enforce these kind of separations, divisions, erasures. Do you know in reality, Mark, I think the what I've felt in uh, the past year, so I, I lived in 12 different places over 12 months because uh, as a team at Redis, we decided that we were going to be all virtual. So 2021, I went to 12 places that I had probably no business going to. <laughs> These are all the places I chose to go that I... And, pre-pandemic times, I wouldn't necessarily thought of going there. So for example, I spent a month in West Virginia. I spent a month Mm -hmm. in uh, Texas. And what I came to realize with open eyes and open mind is that the realities of the the injustice that might be very uh, put into a lightning rod in the idea of an event like George Floyd or Mm -hmm. any of the long list of similar ones is that there actually is uh, an underlying or more fundamental reality of a death by a thousand cuts, which is yeah. through the sanitation department's budget. So, for example, when I was in Houston, uh, right. or or who actually mows the lawn in the Latino neighborhood in Houston versus the white neighborhood? Oh, it doesn't happen. Oh, all of those right. things, the quality of education, the quality of transportation, the list goes on and on and on, and on, on that end up draining resources, money, and time from those types of communities that don't honestly have the money or the time to spare. Yeah. It's amazing. I think we, we talked, you know, before um, in prep for this mm-hmm. talk that, you know, uh, Richard Rothstein's book, the, the color of law yes, about redlining, about the, how those injustices manifest themselves, even through our zoning mm-hmm. to, you know, I think what all the other groups that are in on the real estate, insurance, mm-hmm. government that then sets in place these standards, guidelines, laws, ordinances, how that actually helps to solidify those those injustices. For uh, listeners, I just want to let you know that the book that Mark mentioned is The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein. It's published by Live Right. It won the uh, 2018 Hillman Prize for journalism. So definitely check it out. Very provocative, very thought-provoking book. And on that topic, Mark, uh, you when people say things like, that was so long ago, why does it matter anymore? Move on. 
How has your response to things like that changed over time? And what do you say now? Oh, well, now it's like I can definitely, I can talk about it in terms of, you know, these things I've now read mm-hmm. that I can actually start to show them, you know, because I think part of it is like you want to, you know, there was a, at one point I thought, okay, you speak about your own experiences and that'll have an effect with people. I think they, they still see those as isolated, you know, it's like I, I spoken of, myself friends that have had run-ins with the police but then i think others hear that as you know well that was one case or that was you or you can't really talk about a whole system that way <laughs> right right my, my favorite mark is the ones where particularly whatsapp is a cesspool for islamophobia uh, amongst desis and south asians uh, yeah. and i love the ones where someone will send something blatantly wildly islamophobic and i'll just say like literally that literally makes no sense at all besides the fact that it's completely crazy so i think the the thing that i end up oftentimes we'll get as a response is like, oh, we weren't talking about you. We were talking about the other ones. And I'm like, there are no other ones. I am the other ones. Right, right, right. Well, I mean, oh, not you, Mark. I didn't mean you. I meant like, you know, I've met some, you know, and it's just like people. We're all talking about, we're talking about people Mm -hmm. and their lives and what, you know, who can say what opportunities, you know, mm-hmm. exist out there. It's like my wife and I always talk about it in a way of like, there's a Albert Einstein out there and she's in some slum in India and not getting an opportunity mm-hmm. to show the world, like how she could change the world or, or they're in some, you know, remote place or in some city where they're just not being given opportunity. So I think that, you know, to that point, I think we all have to, we all have to give one another a chance, you know, it's like, especially if it's, if you really want to, I've been around so many discussions that are in the space of diversity and equity and inclusion. Mm-hmm. And I just think we all have to like, really try to understand what those terms mean and come to some understanding of how you start to not just that it's something you end up with like, Oh, Mm -hmm. diversity, we're going to get diversity. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, you do realize this is a process Mm -hmm. and not one something you do once. It's not a person. It's not a department. It's not not a department. It's not this person's in charge of diversity. And it's like, oh, really? You're going to hold that person responsible for change the whole, like, let's have the company's whole uh, outlook change, you know? And it's like, we all have a role to play. We all have a a part to play. Mm -hmm. You know, I I think also in terms of architecture and design, Mm -hmm. that's where I operate, sort of bringing all of this back into that. It's just like after George Floyd, I was encouraged, Mm -hmm. the word I've used recently, encouraged by the amount of points where I told people where they were like, Mark, the world, what should we, what should I do? How can I? And I'm like, you've always had the opportunity to do this. So Mm -hmm. do the work. I'm tired 
I'm really tired because I feel like I spend a lot of time talking about a lot of these issues all the time. We probably, you know, to that person, we probably talked about it before, but I was encouraged by people really making efforts to try to change. But I, I always worried that there's a window. It's a moment and the window closes and we start to backslide. I think in particular what you had mentioned, this idea of responsibility for educating. I love what rapper Mona Heather, she's a hijabi woman uh, from the United States. Uh, she has this lyric which says, if you want education, I'm going to need the PayPal, PayPal, PayPal. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I think to be really honest, I, I mean, for me, I feel that there is an element of transformation that I've gone through where I often saw other races through the lens of the white gaze. And the way that I saw black people was through the lens of the white gaze. The way that I saw Latino people was through the lens of the white gaze. And I think that when you start realizing that that is the long arm of colonialism, such yeah. that the, the inability to humanize with other people that may have similar lots in life to you is probably one of the most fundamental things that just continues for decades and decades and decades after quote unquote independence has been reached. Let's circle back to your work and specifically your work on the Inwood sacred sites and projects like them. Why do you choose to work on projects like that? Because You've had the opportunity to work on an amazing variety of things, but I think there's something very special about these projects and help our listeners understand why you choose to to spend your time and your effort on amazing projects like this. It is an amazing project. I mean, this is like, uh, this really has a great opportunity for me in terms of my growth. I think I said earlier that we're, we're always learning. We're always mm -hmm. becoming and for me, I've worked on a lot of different projects. And at one point I've said, I, they're sure they're like project types that I'd like to work on, but mm -hmm. more importantly, it's like, I think I just, I love people. And it's like, now what's become important to me is just to find really great clients to work mm -hmm. with. You know, great client means potentially great project. Yes, excellent. And it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean, and, and, and it could be anything. It could be a library. It could be a sacred space. It could be a, a home. It could be whatever. But it's just, mm -hmm. uh, it's just finding the sort of right client to work with that allows me to explore the things that where my interests are. Um, I've always had an interest in history and particularly African-American history, my own mm -hmm. family's history. And never really thought about how I could bring that, you know, by ch sometimes by chance. Early in my career, I worked at Stanley, Love Stanley, great architects, William Stanley. I've been, you love Stanley, both mm -hmm. the young award winners who really have a focus on community, mm -hmm. um, especially the African-American community in Atlanta. And uh, when I worked there, I worked on the Ebenezer Baptist Church, which was, um, you know, Dr. King's home church. And mm -hmm. Um, the, their new chapel that was across the street from the historic church. And so there'd be projects like that. But you'd think to me as a young architect, I was like, well, that's just a chance, a great opportunity to sort of, but you can sort of, you know, as I've gotten older, I've learned you can 
you can actually really make inroads to seeking out those types of projects, mm -hmm. right? If those are where your interests are, it's like, sometimes I don't even know if things will turn into, like recently I've been working with um, black urban farmers. I don't even know if there are projects there, but mm -hmm. it's an interest, you know? And so it has turned into some projects that I've bought in terms of not to the practice, but on the academic side to our design mm -hmm. build studio at Parsons and so our design workshop. And so there've been opportunities to work with these black farmers. Mm -hmm. And that was, I, I've learned that you can actually bring those interests that you have that Venn diagram, right? Those interests mm -hmm. you have that, that thing that captures your passion and the work that we do and make those things really start to overlap as much as possible for mm -hmm. this, as much as possible, because at this point I just really want to, you know, I want to be excited about the things that I, I do. Mm -hmm. 100% agree. So thank you so much for taking the time to join us today on the American Building Podcast, Mark. Thank you so much. This is great. I really enjoyed the, the conversation. So listeners, if you want to hear the behind the scenes stories of how iconic buildings in our country were designed and built, subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google, Anchor, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Rate and review us on iTunes to help us reach a wider audience and follow us on Instagram at American Building Podcast. We all know real estate is a tough industry to make it. So how can professionals stand out and make a name for themselves in today's world? Hear from me, the team at Michael Graves and Redist, and many of our spectacular guests like Mark on what we did to make it where we are. Grab our exclusive guide, seven tips on how to stand out in your field at AmericanBuildingPodcast.com. Finally, we live in the richest country in the history of humankind. We must reach out beyond the boundaries that we see and the boundaries that we create in order to help build homes and communities. Today, Mark and I have made donations to the Youth Design Center in Brooklyn, which is a creative agency and innovation hub providing a gateway for young people to learn skills in STEAM, which stands for Science, Technology, engineering, the arts, and mathematics. In addition, the group creates opportunities for students to access post-secondary education, achieve economic mobility, and engage in place-based community revitalization. I encourage you, our listeners, to support their worthwhile work as well. My name is Atif Kader, and this has been American Building.